It was early Friday morning, about this time of year, just before dawn. It was a courtyard, and in the middle of the courtyard, there's burning a charcoal fire. A group's gathered around the charcoal fire because it's a cold morning and they want to stay warm. It's a mixed group. It's made up of government workers uh, and others who are, are there uh, as workers from other occupations. They're gathered together, and most of them have not slept hardly at all that night. They're awake because there's a tension in the air. And the group's gathered because there's a tension, there's an uncertainty of what's going on in the house, in the courtyard for which they have gathered. And they can't wait to see, wondering with anticipation, what's going to happen when dawn comes. Well, there's a man who's clearly not part of the group. He's neither a government worker nor a regular kind of worker. And he's there and nobody from the group that's gathered around the fire knows him, although he does look familiar to a couple of the people that are there. Now, the man doesn't really want to be part of what the group is doing. He wants to stay off to the side as much as possible. He'd prefer to be unnoticed. But the problem is he's drawn in by the warmth of the fire and by the conversation because he too has slept hardly at all that night, maybe an hour if at all. And he too is anxiously wondering what's going to happen in the morning when dawn comes. And so that's what the group is talking about and he's anxious to hear what they have to say about it. Plus he's freezing cold and he'd like to stay warm. So he kind of joins in the group that's there and conversation continues, but at some point there's a pause in the conversation. And one of the people looks over at him and says, are you a follower of Jesus? And the man blatantly lies and says, no, I'm not. Now the person says, but surely you are. Why else would you be here? You're not, you wouldn't be here otherwise. And the man replies, look, I swear to God, I'm not a follower of Jesus. Third person says, didn't I see you earlier tonight in the Garden of Gethsemane with him? To which the man replies, may God strike me dead if I'm lying. I want nothing, I have nothing to do with that worthless, wretched, cursed Jesus. This is the scene of Peter's greatest failure. There's lots of things that Peter does wrong in his career, but none is worse than this. All four Gospels use the word deny to describe what Peter does. He denies the Lord Jesus. That same word Peter himself will use in 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, verse 3, to describe false teachers who deny the Lord who bought them. And Peter says they deserve the blackest darkness. This is why when the rooster crows that morning, Peter weeps bitterly. For the past number of weeks as we've been going through the epistle of 1 Peter, we've been talking about righteous suffering. What we mean by that is suffering that those go through for doing the right thing. Perhaps God's given you a difficult assignment in life. Perhaps you're being persecuted for being a Christian. Perhaps you're just simply trying to do the right thing in a world that wants to do the wrong thing and you're suffering because of it. We've been talking about how God's grace rests upon those who are righteous sufferers. 
This morning, we want to talk about a different group. A group of us who are suffering not for doing what's right, but for doing what's wrong. For those of us who are suffering because we deny Jesus. Those of us who are suffering because we embrace sexual immorality. Those of us who are suffering because we have chosen a lifestyle of lying or of thievery or because we've chosen a lifestyle of coveting or pride. We want to talk this morning about those of us who are going through a difficult season in life or a difficult experience in life because of our own wrong choices. And so we want to leave aside what Peter has to say to talk about those who are suffering because of what's right. And we want to think about what God has to say to those of us who are suffering because of our behavior, because of choices that we have made. To do that, I would really appreciate if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. The Gospel of John chapter 21. It's page 881 in the church Bibles. John chapter 21, page 881. As we've been looking at our series this year, we've mostly been focused in the epistle of 1 Peter so far. But along the way, we've taken time to look at vignettes or stories from the life of the Apostle Peter, recognizing that God not only speaks through Peter's words to us, but also through his life and what was going on as these words were uh, enfleshed in a real person in a real life. And this morning we have the opportunity to look in John chapter 21. Now John chapter 21, to the best of our knowledge, is Peter's first interaction with Jesus after his denial. So that rooster that crows early that morning on Friday that reminds Peter that Jesus predicted he would deny him three times, that rooster that crows is bringing in the dawn of the day in which Jesus will be crucified. That's why everybody's in the courtyard wondering what's going to happen. Jesus is going to die just a few hours after Peter denies him. He'll be buried, and on Easter Sunday, he'll rise from the dead. He'll appear to Peter and the other disciples two times, and then we get to John 21. So John 21 is not the first time that Peter sees Jesus, but it's the first time he's going to interact with Jesus after his denial. We set up the story beginning John chapter 21, verse number one. Afterward, meaning after his resurrection, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now stop here for a moment. Why does Peter go fishing? I mean, surely he's got other things that are important to do. I mean, he's supposed to be an apostle. I mean, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Jesus has appeared to Peter. Isn't there some other stuff Peter should be busy with? <clears throat> I think why Peter chooses to go fishing 
is the same reason that you and I often choose to throw ourselves into our work when we fail Jesus. See, Peter's a professional fisherman. This is what he knows how to do. But remember the last major scene in which we see Peter engaged with and about Jesus, he's denying him. Matthew even goes so far as to say he calls down curses from heaven on Jesus. And Peter can't face what he's done. He's supposed to be, you know, Jesus says, Peter, the rock in which I will build my church, the lead apostle, here he is, he's forfeited that. He has denied Jesus and Peter can't face himself. And so he does what we do. He goes back to his life before Jesus. He goes back to the thing that he knows. He's hoping that if he throws himself back into his old life, if he throws himself into his work, he's not going to have to deal with that pit in his stomach, that shame, that guilt that's there because he's chosen to deny the Lord. Peter can't face what he's done. He thinks, I'm no longer worthy to be an apostle. I certainly can't lead. I better just go back to fishing. We do that too, don't we? Our marriage falls apart in part because of sinful choices that we've made, but we can't face the pain of that. And so we throw ourselves into our job and we wanna work as many hours as possible and try to have as much, anything to take our mind off of our own guilt and shame, the hole that's there because of our choices. We get caught cheating in class. For the teacher that has poured so much time and energy into us, who believed in us, who've given us so many, we get caught cheating in her class and we can't face the guilt and the shame of it. So we throw ourselves into social media or to video games, anything not to have to deal with the fact that we've done something terribly wrong. Or we're given a ministry assignment by God. And when the going gets tough, we quit. We abandon it. We just can't take it anymore. We can't deal with the pain and the guilt of that. And so we throw ourselves into family relationships or something else that seems good in order to take our mind off the fact that we let God down. And that hole that's there, that guilt, that shame, we don't want to face it. Peter is denying the fact that he denied Jesus. And that's why he goes back fishing. But the problem is, that night they caught Nothing. Now it's interesting, Peter, along with some of the other disciples, are professional fishermen. I think it's very interesting that in the four Gospels, we got lots of stories about these fishermen. Never once do they catch any fish without Jesus' help. <laughs> we don't have any success. They're never successful as fishermen. And they're not successful here because Jesus won't let them catch any fish. Peter wants to go back to his old life. Peter wants to go back to his old job. But Jesus will not let him catch any fish. The story continues. Verse 4, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. 
The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Now stop there again for a moment. Here we have this miraculous catch of fish. The fishermen are unable to catch any fish all night long. Jesus has stopped that from happening. Now when he calls out to them, let your nets down on the right side of the boat, and they do, there is this miraculous catch of fish. Now does this miracle sound familiar at all? Has Peter ever seen anything like this before? He has. Remember in Luke chapter 5, which is not this story, it's much earlier. Jesus is teaching crowds on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter is there working as a fisherman. He's a professional fisherman. He's there with his partners. Jesus is teaching. Peter is interested. He's there learning. Jesus commandeers his boat, uses it to teach the crowd so he can be out in the water, standing on the boat, teaching the crowds that are gathered on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He asks Peter, you got any fish? Peter says, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. Jesus says, put your nets down again. Peter says, look, we tried this, but... Because, teacher, you've told us to do it, we will obey. They put their nets down. It's a miraculous catch of fish, so much so that their boat and their partner's boat, the two of them, begin to be swamped and start to sink. And do you remember what Jesus says to Peter on that day? Peter says to him, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Jesus says to Peter, you were a fisherman, but I'm going to make you into a fisher of men. That's the day in which Peter received his commission as an apostle. That's the day in which Jesus says to Peter, leave your nets, come follow me. It's time for you to stop being a fisherman and it's time for you to start being a fisher of people. I'm going to make you into an apostle. And that's the day that Peter leaves to come follow Jesus. But there's another scene that Jesus has recreated here as well besides Luke 5. Verse 4, early in the morning. The language of early in the morning is the same language as in the denial. It's early in the morning that Peter denies Jesus, maybe just a week earlier. Right before dawn, and that's when this miracle takes place. Jesus has shown up not just at some random time, but at the exact time that a week earlier, Peter had been denying that he even knew him. And Jesus sets this up to happen at that moment. Another clue. See in verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, a charcoal fire. The word for charcoal fire that's used here is used only one other time in the entire New Testament. Any guess where that is? John 18 and Peter's denial. They're gathered around a charcoal fire. Here, Jesus has recreated the charcoal fire and they're gathered now around the charcoal fire. He's reproduced two scenes from Peter's life at the same time. The first is Luke 5, where Peter was called to be an apostle. The second is John 18, where Peter threw away the commission. Jesus called him to follow. Peter followed. Then he gets into Caiaphas' courtyard, and he says, Jesus, I swear to God, I don't know the man. 
And Peter in his mind has said, I'm not worthy to be an apostle anymore. I threw away my commission. I had this chance to follow Jesus. I had this chance to be a leader. I had this chance to do something meaningful with my life. And I denied him. I cursed him. I did the worst possible thing that you can do. I'm of no use to God or anybody anymore. I may as well just fish. And Jesus is recreating these two scenes from Peter's life to tell him, I know you think that you have thrown away your commission, but I made you a promise, and I'm going to keep it. I promised I would make you a fisher of men. And not even your own sin, Peter, is going to stop me from keeping that promise. And so Jesus has recreated the time in which he called Peter to be an apostle to remind him nothing, not even your own choices, are going to stop me from doing what I swore to you I would do. Well, the story continues, verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So here we have a miraculous feeding involving loaves and fish. Does that sound familiar? John chapter 6. 5,000 people plus have gathered to hear Jesus' words. He teaches them, and when he's done teaching, he knows that they're hungry. So he says to Peter and the other disciples, give them some food. The other disciples are like, when in the world are we going to get food for 5,000 people? And Jesus says, okay, well, what do you have? And the answer is, oh, we got a little boy's lunch. And in that lunch, there are five loaves and two fish. Jesus takes those five loaves and those two fish and he performs a miracle and he multiplies the food so that there's enough to feed 5,000 plus people. Now, every time I hear that story, the same thought comes to mind. What do you need the lunch for? Can't you just do this? Like, why do we have to have the little boy's lunch? I mean, it's obviously a miracle. Can't you just start with nothing and make food for everybody? I mean, you're the, Jesus, you're the creator of the world. You made all the food there is. He doesn't need the little boy's lunch. Why does he ask for it? Well, because he wants the little boy to be involved in the miracle that he's doing. He wants the disciples to be involved in what's going on. Of course, Jesus can provide the food without the lunch, but that would leave them out of the story. This is a chance for them to be involved. This is a chance for them to be blessed. This is a chance for their obedience to be used by Jesus, for him to do great good in the kingdom of God. The same is true in this story. Jesus doesn't need Peter's fish. There's already fish cooking on the fire before they even get ashore. He's already got the food ready. But he says to Peter, bring me some of the fish you caught. Not by my power, but you caught. Why? He wants Peter to be part of what he's doing. Of course Jesus doesn't need Peter's fish. He's already got fish. He's already got breakfast made. But it's interesting in John 6, after this great miracle of feeding 5,000 people, 
5,000 people plus people are now like, okay, Jesus, you have our attention. <laughs> like, this is a miracle. This is amazing. And so they are paying attention. Of course, Jesus, being Jesus, chooses this as the moment to proclaim some very, very hard teaching. And he goes through some very, very hard teaching to this group of people. And all of them basically leave. They're like, we can't handle this guy. We thought we were just here for the food. And they all desert Jesus. And Jesus turns to the 12. And he says to them, will you leave too? And Peter is the one who responds. Where would we go, Lord? You have the words of life. See, Jesus is taking Peter back to another story in his past, a time when Peter did stand up for Jesus, a time when Peter didn't deny him, but he stood up and said, you're the Lord, I'm sticking with you. You see, Jesus can do what he wants in the kingdom of God without Peter. He doesn't need Peter, but he wants him. He wants Peter to experience that blessing. In effect, he's saying to Peter, remember how great it was when you stood up for me? Remember what blessing you saw when you experienced my grace in the midst of that situation? Jesus says to Peter, I want this for you again. I'm not, I could, of course he can just do it without Peter. But Jesus says, I don't want to. I want you to experience the blessing of being part of the kingdom. And so Jesus has recreated for Peter this miracle that he did in John 6 to remind Peter of just how great it was when Peter followed after Jesus and obeyed Jesus and got to be part of the blessing of the miracle of God. And Jesus is in effect saying to Peter, we're not going forward without you. All of that is the setup for the actual conversation. And the actual conversation is in verses 15 to 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now again, there are a couple of scenes from Peter's life that are being echoed here. The first is, of course, the denial. Three times Peter is publicly asked, are you a follower of Jesus? And three times Peter publicly denies that Jesus is Lord. And so here, Jesus gives Peter the chance to be restored. This is a public setting, meaning the other disciples are right there. This is not a private conversation between Jesus and Peter. They're all right there. And Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity publicly to affirm his love for Jesus because Peter denied his love for Jesus publicly three times. That's why there are three questions. Same question three times. Peter was asked three times, are you a follower of Jesus? Three times he said no. Here he's asked a question three times, do you love me, Peter? And three times Peter says yes. This is Jesus restoring Peter, giving him grace and mercy for his denial, telling him, I forgive you. 
But there's another scene that's echoed here. And it's referenced in how Jesus refers to Peter. He calls him Simon, son of John. There's only one other time that we know of that Jesus ever called Peter by this name. And it was on the very first day that he met him. John chapter 1, verse 42. He said, Simon, son of John, from now on you will be called Peter. And what Jesus is doing is taking Peter back to before he was called to be an apostle. Before Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. Before all of that, back to the very first moment in which they met. And he does so by referring to Peter in the most personal way possible. By his own personal name. See, the problem is, is that Peter's sin was not ultimately an abandoning of his commission a failure to be the apostle Jesus wanted him to be. It was a personal failure. This was his friend. This was his savior. This was his Lord that Peter denied having anything to... This is the person that Peter calls down curses on. See, when we sin... Doesn't matter that we're an apostle or an elder or a parent or a youth leader. At the end of the day, all sin is personal. It's not just an abandoning of an assignment. It's not just failing to carry out what God asked us to do. It's not failing to have the position God wanted us to be. It's ultimately a personal affront against the Lord who loves us. It is a personal rejection of the God who is our friend, who saved us, who called us to himself. It's the most personal thing we can do to God. And so Jesus here brings Peter all the way back, back before the assignments, back before he was called to be an apostle, back before it was said he would be the rock on which we'd build the church, all the way back to when Jesus first met him. And he gives him the chance to restore the relationship. It's almost like Peter's being given a new beginning. This is how great Jesus is forgiveness. He takes him all the way back. And he says, Peter, ultimately this was between you and me as Lord and disciple. And Jesus says to him, Peter, I forgive you. I forgive you for what you did. Now, I said it's almost like a new beginning. The reason it's not a new beginning is because it's very clear that Peter has changed immensely from that first day he met Jesus three years earlier. We know that because Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, who are the these? He's saying, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Now, why does he ask him this? Well, remember, right before the denial, Jesus has said, you're all going to leave me. And Peter stands up and says, they will, but I won't. Even if everybody else abandons you, I'm going to stick with you. I love you more than they do, and even if I have to die, I'll do it. Now, that was false bravado. He was simply speaking out of imagined courage. When push came to shove, 
And he was asked, do you love Jesus? He said, I swear to God, I don't. But now when Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me more than these? The expected answer and the real answer is yes. And that's because of a teaching Jesus gave to them earlier, which says, he who is forgiven much loves much. And he who is forgiven little loves little. Peter now loves Jesus more than anybody else at that moment. Because what he has done is unspeakably bad. He has cursed God. He should have died. He has blasphemed. He has rejected the Lord who was going to die for him. He has betrayed his friend. He has done the worst possible thing that you can do. And Jesus chose to forgive him. Jesus chose not to. Peter should be dead. He should no longer be an apostle. He should no longer be serving God. But God chose not to do that. Instead, he chose to love him and forgive him. That's the scandal of grace. And Peter now understands. Now he loves Jesus. Because he has been loved in the most incredible possible way. Now it is a true statement. Peter does love Jesus more than anybody else in that conversation. You can also see how much Peter has grown from when Jesus asks him, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Here's Peter, the man of action. When he bursts onto the scene, Peter's the doer. He's the one that wants to get out of the boat and walk on the water. He's the one that quick to pull out the sword and attack the, uh, attack the guards. He's the one who takes Jesus aside and lectures him about his bad theology. He's the one who says to Jesus, I'll die for you. That Peter is gone. The Peter that's now here is the one who realizes I've messed up too badly. There's nothing I can do to make this right. There's no action that I can take. And so he doesn't say to Jesus, give me 10 years and I'll prove it to you. He doesn't say, give me an assignment and I'll show you. He simply says, I got nothing. I'm just here. And I'm just going to rest in the fact that you know me. And that you know that I love you. And Peter, he's got nothing else to offer. See, this is what failure does. Failure brings us to a place of deeper love for God and deeper reliance on God because it's in our failure that we meet the God of all grace and that when we know in our heart he should be done with us, when we know we have no business being a Christian, we have no business serving him anymore, we have no right to anything, and God still shows up and says, I will not let you go. I made you a promise. I promised I would make you a fisher of men. I promised that I began this work and that I'm going to see it completion. And when he shows up, despite the fact that we've cursed his name, despite the fact that we've sworn and blasphemed, despite the fact that we've engaged in sexual immorality or pornography or lying or cheating or abandoned our boat or whatever it may be, when he still shows up and says, I will not let you go. 
All of a sudden you realize that failure is not the end of our relationship with God. It's the beginning. The beginning of a deeper love for Jesus. A beginning of a deeper trust for him. The realization that it's not about what I can do for him. About how I can prove myself. About how I can show myself to be faithful. It's about a God who loves us. Despite the fact that we are ridiculous failures. And his grace is simply bigger than our failure. The reason I think all four Gospels share Peter's story of denying Jesus is because you got to have testimonies of this kind of stuff. you got to know that God doesn't just forgive in general. He forgives individuals. And so this morning I've got another testimony I'd like you to hear. It's a testimony from Ardo, who's one of our pastoral residents on staff of our church. He prayed for the offering. But Ardo's got a great story of God's grace. Ardo, come and share your story with us. Good morning. My name is Ardo Draper. I was born right here in Grand Rapids. Uh, went to school in Grand Rapids until my junior high years, where I, at that time, chose to drop out of school. Um, at that time, I chose to move over to Cleveland, Ohio and live with my dad. And that wasn't the best of choices. You see, my dad was not a godly man. My dad had no relationship at all with the Lord. As a matter of fact, he was an alcoholic. He was a whoremonger. And he was a few other things that is not appropriate for me to share with you from the stage here this morning. So... As I grew into a young adulthood, I made a lot of bad choices. And to fast forward, those choices caused me a lot of trips in and out of the county jails across this country. And in 1989, I was in a county jail in San Bernardino, California. And I was sitting next to a group of guys that were doing a Bible study at a table right next to the one that I was sitting at. And the leader of that Bible study was discussing God's grace. Well, at that time, something very supernatural happened. Uh, I was taken out of that jail cell, and where I was taken to was back to every occurrence in my life where I had been about that close to death. See, I've been in a situation where I've had a 38 uh, caliber handgun placed in my temple, cocked and then pulled the trigger and the gun misfired. I've also been through a plate glass window head first and tore off the tip of my nose. I don't know if you've ever, those of you who know me probably seen the scar. Well, that's what it's from. I've also been uh, in my ex-life. I've been a heroin addict uh, for over 25 years of my life. I spent addicted to that drug and I've been in some situations where I've OD'd and I was in one particular situation where I uh, injected some heroin into my arm and the, and the shot that I injected was given to me to kill me. But God allowed me to see in each one of those instances, it was his grace that had brought me through those circumstances and not luck, which I had accredited it to. And anyway, I accepted the Lord into my heart uh, at that time in 1989. And between 1989 and 2004, I went to prison three times. See, every time I went to prison and got into prison, God would make his plan perfectly clear to me of what 
my purpose was of why he created me. But as soon as that door opened and I got out of that prison, of course, I went back to my old lifestyle. Uh, I went back to what I knew best. But the third time God came to me in that prison, uh, he sat me down and he had a long talk with me and he made it perfectly clear that he had come to me twice before and made his plan perfectly clear to me in my life. So now I stand before you, an ordained reverend uh, in training here at Calvary to become a pastor, and God is good. Amen. God bless you. When we talk about God's grace, that's what we're talking about. Of course, there's the grace that saved Ardo. But there's a lot of grace between 1989 and 2004 in which Ardo did some stuff that should have, God, should have caused God to abandon him. But instead, God's called him to ministry. God has restored him. God has given him an opportunity to be involved in the kingdom work that he's doing. This is how gracious God is. But the question is, what about you? And what about me? Are you here this morning having denied Jesus? Have you been engaged in sexual immorality? Have you had an abortion? Have you been involved in lying? Have you let pride creep into your life? Have you allowed yourself to keep saying no to God, something he keeps asking you to do in a way to serve him? The point is, is that I think God's brought you here this morning just like he brought Peter to the shores of the Sea of Galilee. To be able to say to you and to me, look, I forgive you. I want to restore you. It's, you may think that what you've done is so bad, that God could have nothing to do with you. I'm telling you, there is nothing that you or I could do that is worse than what Peter did. He cursed the Son of God. And God chose to forgive him. Chose to forgive him. And not only that, he embraced him. He made him the chief apostle. And he has used him to do immeasurably great things. And the question is, are you here this morning and has God brought you here? Perhaps you heard a song sung this morning which brought you back like Ardo was talking about or like Jesus did for Peter, back to a time in your life when you first met Jesus. And he's reminding you, do you remember how great it was? Maybe he's brought you back to a time in which you were really serving him wholeheartedly like Peter was and you were standing up for Jesus, but that's been a while because you've been enmeshed in your own stuff. Maybe you've been hiding in work, trying not to deal with the shame and the guilt of the things that you've done. And Jesus has brought you here this morning and through his word, he's been talking to your heart saying, but I forgive you. I forgive you, you've not thrown it away. I made you a promise and the promise was that I would transform you into being like my son Jesus and I'm gonna keep that promise. Maybe God's put somebody back into your life that you've not seen for a long time to remind you. You remember the impact you had on that person? Remember what you did for that person? I forgive you. You can do it again. A couple of weeks ago, we left the extensions off and the stairs open and said, look, if you're going through righteous suffering, come down here and place yourself in God's hands and trust him. This morning is the second half of that offer. Only this time it's not for those who are going through righteous suffering. It's those who are suffering because we've made bad choices. And if that's your story, if that's my story, I'm just going to invite you. We're going to sing some songs together. No rush. Just going to sing some songs together. Simply come down here and place yourselves in the hands of a gracious God. You say, well, I can do this in the, just in my seat where I'm at. 
Jesus asked Peter to do it publicly because his sin was public. Others knew about it. So Jesus said, come publicly. We're not going to ask you what your sin is. This is between you and the Lord. But it's an opportunity for you to be able to come and hear in God's house, hear Jesus say to you, I love you. I forgive you. I restore you. So as we sing and the Spirit leads, come.